Super Bowl 56 is at SoFi Stadium today in Los Angeles. LA Rams are odd, odd, uh, odds-on favorites to win, chosen by odds makers who predict the future. There's a lot of betting on this football game. Last year, there was $4.3 billion bet on the game. It's estimated that it will go over $5 billion this year. A lot of people are going to lose money. Some will, will win some. But here's what they're doing. They're taking a chance. They're not, they don't know the outcome. They're taking a chance. They're taking a risk. They're gambling on the future. It's possible for a Christian to think that they are gambling their soul as they follow Christ. And to think that the outcome is in question. To wonder if they'll make it to heaven. To doubt due to the twists and turns of life that God may follow through on his promises. They think that maybe God will fail to deliver to the final destination. Added to that, mankind is moving further and further away from God, resisting and rebelling and refusing his rule. They're gambling that he will ignore their sin. And yet... The Christian life is no gamble. God's decreed will is 100% certain. There is no doubt with regard to what God has predestined and predetermined and promised to do. Christian hope is no gamble. It is surer than the rising and setting of the sun. It is surer than death and taxes. And what we will see today in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, it's all because God is faithful. He is faithful. He will do everything he promised to do. You're not gambling your soul when you follow Christ. I love 1 Thessalonians. We're coming to the end. The last few verses. Paul is writing to a beloved church. Those who are beloved of God. And they're becoming increasingly beloved to one another like, like we ought to be. And fresh on the heels of speaking of God's will and word-driven worship and all these other things he's been saying about practical Christian living, he, he looks to God to grant the things that God commands. In light of the Lord's return, and all the things he's been talking about, sexual purity and brotherly love and trusting God's timing for the return of Christ and respecting your leaders and loving others and having joy and praying and giving thanks and worshiping, he's saying all of this is possible only through God, only through God Almighty. You you can't do this on your own. Paul is saying God alone can make everything work out because the truly saved will be fully saved. The truly saved will be fully saved. And I, I want you to let this beautiful truth just occupy your mind today and allow 1 Thessalonians 5... 23 and 24, to have its way in your heart, the the, the Spirit of God would use the Word to do its work in your heart. In this passage, you see a prayer and a promise. A prayer and a promise. A prayer for sanctification, a promise for completion. Verse 23, a prayer for sanctification. Verse 24, a promise for completion. It's rooted in the depths of God's goodness. It's rooted in the character of God who he is and what he does. 
this prayer for sanctification in verse 23 literally prays for what God says he will do. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul has concluded all the exhortations, the imperatives, and he's acknowledging God as the source for obedience and that God is going to fulfill everything he says he will do. It's the God of peace himself that will do it. God himself, the, the giver of peace through Christ's death. So the, the exhortations that we've seen, and some of them aren't exactly comfortable to receive. Like, see to it that you respect your leaders. There's a, a trace of disharmony there, that maybe they weren't doing it. See to it that you love one another. There's a trace of disharmony in, in many of the exhortations that we have seen. And he, what he's saying, he's saying, God, please be the mediator here. You are the peacemaker. And he brings in the mediator. He addresses God as the giver of peace. The one who provides harmony with himself and with other people through Christ's death. And this is a common way for God to be addressed, the God of peace. In Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, believers. Philippians 4.9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You'll have assurance when you obey God. And so the God of peace is being asked to sanctify believers completely, to make them holy, to consecrate them. Literally, the word is hallow, to sanctify. Jesus prayed this. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The Son praying to the Father. Sanctification is no surprise when you get here. We've seen sanctification as a theme in 1 Thessalonians, we see in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. Sanctification. God making believers more like Christ. Now in justification, where you come to faith in Christ, that's solely the work of God. It's, it's called monergistic salvation. It's the work of one. We don't earn it. We don't do anything for it. But sanctification is interesting. It is, as theologians would put it, a lifelong work of God and man, whereby God makes you more and more like Christ. And you're like, well, hold on a minute, I can't understand. Well, welcome to the club of not understanding all of God's ways. You could think of it as this. This is probably not the greatest example, but you know the motorcycles with a sidecar? And you got somebody driving the motorcycle, there's an engine and all that, and the, and the sidecar, you're like, you're in the sidecar. <laughs> but you want to be there, and you're, you're helping. You're not like, you know, trying to jump out. And it's more than that because your will needs to be engaged. In fact, Paul said something like this. He said, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Try to figure that out. God wants you engaged in, in sanctification. You need to wake up in the morning, and if you're a Christian, you want to please Jesus. And if you've sinned, you want to confess your sins. And you want to love people, and you want to share the gospel, and you want to live to the glory of God no matter what you do in life. Paul prays for that. Paul prays that God would sanctify every believer through and through, literally completely, through and through, all the way through, to ultimate maturity of Christian character. This is the goal, the glory of God. Praying for what God said he will do. 
Now, here's the thing about sanctification. You can't be sanctified unless you're saved, unless you've been justified. You've come to faith in Christ. The Bible tells us you must be born again. You need to repent and believe. You need to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus. And that's all of God's doing. John 1 tells us we're not born of the will of man, but of the will of God. He told the Corinthians, by God's doing, you are in Christ. Peter says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then you get into sanctification, the realm of sanctification. You can't, you can't do this in your own willpower. You can't do it all by yourself. God must be at work in your life. And so you can't, it's like Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I'm trusting the spirit of God, walking by the spirit of God. And God does the sanctifying, but we have to be engaged. He prays, may your whole spirit and soul and body. That's a comprehensive term. It, it literally makes completely more emphatic. It's the totality of who you are. That, that everything about you would be kept blameless. We who feel so blameworthy, we who don't feel blameless, you would be kept, preserved, guarded, watched over, kept blameless, complete, entire, without blame. These two graphic words, the safekeeping word and preservation, that you would be complete, that you would be whole, that you would be undamaged, that you would be intact, you know, Something comes to your house and lands on the front door. Someone delivers it and it's all mangled. It's not intact. It's broken, in fact, inside. And the prayer is that you would get to heaven, that you would get to glory, whole and undamaged and in intact. And it's because God does the impossible. Imagine with me for a moment if I handed you a dozen eggs in a carton. You know what I'm saying? And they're cold. They're like ready to make an omelet or, you know, do the rocky thing and put it in a <laughs> glass of milk and just drink it down. And I, and I say to you, here's the deal. I need you to take this dozen eggs, hold them in your right hand, that carton in your right hand, and then I need you to go to the Himalayas. I need you to climb all the Himalayan mountains. And I've been there, and it's big. You can see the pictures, right? And you've got to go through all of those, and don't break these eggs. And go through extreme temperatures. After you go to the Himalayas, go to the Sahara Desert. And make sure that these eggs are still cold and cool and ready to make an omelet when you get back. Oh, and go through stormy seas, rocking back and forth. Well, here's the deal. We would turn from that and trip and break the eggs. <laughs> we just couldn't do it. And here, the prayer is that God would take a believer and make them blameless and without spot and without blemish. And we're like, there is no way that this could happen. I know how messed up I am already. Only God himself can separate us from sin to holiness completely. Is it promise of God? Is it a decree of God? Those who are truly saved will be truly brought to the finish line and on into glory. And, and when? When? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I like to say that if, if you're a believer... It's, it's until Jesus comes or you go to be with him, whichever comes first. 
This is the fourth reference now to Christ's return for his church. You see in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. As a prayer for those chosen of God to be pleasing to God, to be holy. And it goes all the way through the whole Bible. This, this thread runs all the way through. Leviticus 20, verse 8. Keep my statutes, do them, obey me. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. That's how you get sanctified. You, you keep doing what God says to do. And, and he says, you shall be holy to me, for I am holy, because I have separated you from the peoples to be mine. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are being sanctified. That's why Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. That's how you get sanctified. Paul says in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He'll be faithful at the day of Christ. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then he goes on to say, so he's going to complete this work. So here's what you do. You want to approve what is excellent and pure and blameless for the day of Christ. What you do now matters. It matters. In Colossians 1, it says that we were reconciled by his death so that we would be presented holy and blameless above reproach before him at his presence on that day. And then Jude 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. We stumble in many ways. This is the full headlong, you're not getting saved stumbling. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before his glory, in the presence of his glory, with great joy. Yours, his. This is what he's getting prayed for. Matthew Henry wrote in his journal on January 1st, 1705. Now, a lot of you maybe keep a journal, or on January 1 this year, you, you came up with some ideas. This is what I'd like to do this year. Here's the direction I'd like to go. Here's my goals for the year. Here's my you know, resolutions, or whatever you want to call them. Well, Matthew Henry wrote in his journal on January 1st, 1705, he said this, repeating and ratifying all my former covenants with God and lamenting that I have not lived up more closely to them. I do, in the beginning of this new year, solemnly make a fresh surrender of myself, my whole self, body, soul, and spirit, to God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, my Creator, Redeemer, Sanctifier, covenanting and promising, not in any strength of my own, for I am very weak, but in the strength of the grace of Jesus Christ, that I will endeavor this year to stand complete in all the will of God. I want to do what pleases God, he wrote. And he said this, he said, I know this is the will of God, my sanctification. And then he prays, Lord, grant this year that I may be more holy, that I would walk more closely than ever in all holy living, that I would earnestly desire to be filled with your holy thoughts and to be carried out in holy affections, determined by holy aims and intentions, and governed in all my words and actions by holy principles. And then he said this, Oh, that a golden thread of holiness may run through this entire year. What a prayer. Verse 23 is a prayer for what God has already commanded and promised. You should pray as often as you can for what God has already decreed and declared and commanded and promised. Because you're praying according to the will of God. 
Lord, make it be so. Jesus prayed that believers would be in glory with him. Well, that was determined before the foundation of the world. And he prayed it in John 17. Paul and Jude, they prayed as well the same kind of things. James Roskap said, Paul prays in harmony with God's will for the redeemed. God will give them new, glorified, eternal bodies. This is prayer in sync with him asking for his will to be realized. Pray this as often as you can. Pray that the saved would be made ultimately blameless and spotless by Christ when he appears. We will appear with him in glory, a glorious future glorified state for every believer. And what's getting prayed for is God's will. And it's not in question. It's not a gamble. You don't have to worry if this prayer is going to get answered. It's going to look different in everyone's life who's a believer, but it's going to get answered in the affirmative. Because verse 23 prays for God's will, and verse 24 explains his work. You think about it. God's will, the the standing of a believer is secure. The progress that they're going to make is ensured. There will be progress, steady progress. I know it seems slow right now, but the future is assured for a believer. But then God's work is, he is going to do what he says he will do. For his glory. For your good. There will be full deliverance. There will be full freedom from sin. We can't even imagine that. Marshall Seagal wrote an article about this very thing. He says, My remaining imperfections regularly, even daily, disrupt and corrupt my thoughts, my decisions, and conversations, just like all of us. And he says, how do you respond when you are forced to see those same sins in the mirror again, the ones that you have confessed and fought and even overcome, only to have to rise and confess and fight again? Then he said this, As God mapped out our narrow paths to glory, he chose that imperfection would be our constant and unwanted companion. And he's not talking about unrepentant sin. If you say, I'm not gonna, I I know I'm sinning and I'm not gonna turn from it, that's not what this is talking about. 1 John 3 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. What that means is someone who just says, I'm going to do whatever I want, anytime I want. I don't need to confess my sins. I don't need to try to please God. He says, if you're born of God, you cannot keep sinning. That doesn't mean you're going to reach some sinless perfection here on earth. If you think that, then you're proud. What it means is that you've been born of God, so you will want to confess your sins. You will want to repent of your sins, turn from them. You'll want to please God. If you're dealing with unrepentant sin in your life, it should uh, disturb you to no end. It should not give you any peace. You should be kept awake at night if you're harboring unrepentant sin in your life. Unrepentant sin should disturb your soul till you genuinely repent and receive the mercy of God. But the truth is, for every true believer, sin remains but it must not reign in your life. It must not rule in your life because Christ is Lord. But every person God chooses is still imperfect in this moment. 
And what, what, what the truth is, is the remaining sin in your life is forgiven and expiring. I like how Seagal put it that way. It's, it's expiring. Like the day you die will be the last day you sin. Oh, for that day. But your remaining sin is very real and powerful and oftentimes ugly. We ask these kind of questions. How could this selfishness, how could this impatience, how could this lust, how could this laziness, how could this envy possibly still entangle me after all this time? And then we have to ask, well, so what does it look like to live a godly life while you know you're imperfect? What does it, what does it look like? It looks like all of us. It, it, Paul is our best example. He knew he was a work in progress. He knew it. At, at, at one point, he says, I am the worst of sinners. I'm the foremost. He was aware of his imperfections, but he wasn't paralyzed by them. He wasn't paralyzed by his imperfections. In Philippians 3.12, he says, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There's the assurance. So I can press on and not think that I'm perfect, not think that I'm completed. Like he wasn't sitting back and waiting for his resurrection. He pressed on knowing that God one day would make him fully righteous made him all the more hungry to grow in righteousness until that day. It's like this. Because of the God of peace, you can be at war with your sin. Remaining sin in your life ought to be motivation for righteousness and more of Christ. You keep pressing on because you know you will be preserved. Even, Even in this prayer, God is using the desire expressed in this prayer as he carries out his purposes. Pray this prayer. Pray for yourself to be sanctified if you're a believer. Pray that every believer will be sanctified. It's the prayer for sanctification, and there is a promise of completion attached right to it in verse 24. This is so perfectly gospel-centered. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's a diamond set in a ring that will never be jostled out or removed. Uh, twice my wife Angela has lost the diamond in her wedding ring. We've had to look for it. One time we found it, one time we didn't. It happens. Things get damaged. You know, you hit something and it, and it, it well, where'd it go? But this gospel diamond is set such that it will never move. It will never be jostled. It will never be lost He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. It settles everything. There's no gamble in your life as you're following Christ to think that you're not going to make it to heaven, believer. He calls you. He who calls you. Every time God's call is mentioned in the New Testament, it refers to his effectual call of his elect for salvation. Romans and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and 2 Timothy and 1 Peter and 2 Peter. In Romans 8, those who he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Paul says to the Galatians, he who set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, he he called you through the gospel so you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1.9, he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. He's faithful. 
He calls and he's faithful. The Lord our God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Deuteronomy 7, 9. The psalmist cries out, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. That that you are God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The psalmist would say, I bow down and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Psalm 138, verse 2. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. He will surely do it. If you're a believer, God will carry you safely to his eternal kingdom. Even if it looks so much in doubt right now. I was just thinking about, I don't know, was it a couple Super Bowls ago where it was like the outcome looks really in doubt for the team I was, I was rooting for, and then they came back amazingly. Well, it happens. Someday. You might be thinking right now, I, I just don't see it going happen. Don't see it going on, don't see it happening. Someday. Someday. Total perfection by the good graces of God. We can't even imagine it. It blows our minds to even think about it. That day when free from sin, you will glorify God completely. It's going to happen for every believer. In 1 Corinthians 1, it says that he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship with his son, Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 3, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. God guaranteed it, the writer of Hebrews says, with an oath, so that we who have fled for refuge would have strong encouragement to lay hold of the hope set before us. Peter says, after you have suffered a little while, you know what that means? After you've lived this life, decades or even some people live a century after you've suffered a little while as you live this life on earth after you've suffered a little while the god of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in christ will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you this is not in doubt this is not a gamble he will save us as the writer of hebrews says to the uttermost to the uttermost John Owen once asked this question. He says, um, when, when you go to someone for help, are they willing to help you? And are they able to help you? You should be asking those questions. And he says, we need to know that Christ is both willing and able to help us and meet our needs. He says, what will Christ not do for us? He emptied and humbled himself. He came down from the infinite height of glory to take our finite nature into union with his infinite nature. Will he not meet all of our needs and answer according to his infinite wisdom all of our prayers for help? Will he not do all that is necessary for us to be eternally saved? The believer's hope. Owen says, Christ is indeed most willing and able to help us. And if we do not see his glory in this, it is because we have no faith in us. We have no faith if we can't see God's glory in that. God is faithful. God fulfills every promise to us. If we're feeble, we're frail, we're faulty, we, we're, we're 
We're faithless often, but we are forgiven in Christ. And, and forgiven followers, because they are Christ's, will make it all the way. And not because of themselves, but because of Christ. We've been chosen and loved and changed and sanctified and glorified. He will do it. Verse 24 says, he will do it. That's not moving. That's decreed. That's, that's not a gamble. But I realize a lot of people have trouble believing it. You've got all these other thoughts swirling around in your mind like a, you know, a tsunami of terror on your soul. And by grace, the chain of redemption will not be broken. None are going to be lost. If you're a Christian today, you need to be reassured. Be reassured. He, he, God is the one who issued the call to salvation. God's going to bring to pass what he promised. You think about Romans 4, and it's talking about Abraham, and he was fully persuaded that God was able to perform and promise to, to do what he said he had promised. He was able to perform it. He called, he will do it. It was in the future tense. God's going to bring believers to perfection. How as imperfect as we are this very moment. If you're a believer today, if you've trusted in the finished work of Christ, if you've come to faith in Christ, you know he died on the cross in your place. Don't let doubt and unbelief, or hatred or lust or unforgiveness or fear live rent-free in your mind any longer. Let the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, renew your mind such that you would be able to, to actually do the perfect will of God, not your destructive desire that might come up. I think that this passage, this brief, brief passage, two verses, it's like antibodies for our soul, bolsters your soul, strengthens your soul, such that you wouldn't want to hear these verses and walk away unchanged. That you wouldn't want to hear these verses and continue unresolved. That God's goodness must lead to your desire for holiness. But think about when you see the work of a master chef and they're making all this amazing food. It makes you want to eat the food. But if, if you don't want to, there's something wrong with your appetite. You need to have an appetite for God and for his goodness and glory and for his word and for wanting to get up in the morning and say, I, I want to please the Lord. I want to please God. And to do that, you're going to need to, I mean, this is where it gets down to the very basic life of a Christian. You need to have a heart that is examined regularly by you. The Spirit of God, search your heart with the Word, and you need to think it through. You need to have a mind that is being renewed by the Spirit through the Word. You need to have a conscience that is clear. Robert Murray Machane lived from 1813 to 1843, and he pastored St. Peter's Church in Dundee from 1836 to 1843. You did the math in his life. He actually died before age 30. But he left an impactful legacy. And his life, very short life, was marked by communion with Christ and by commitment to holiness and compassion for the lost. And he would often pray, Lord, make me as holy as a redeemed sinner could be. Make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be made. But his prayers for holiness went hand in hand with a resolve to diligently watch over his own soul. And he wrote out a plan he called Reformation. He wanted to guard his heart and cultivate his relationship with the Lord. And he had this conviction. He had these three commitments. He said, I want to maintain a conscience void of offense. I want to always be washed in Christ's blood. 
And secondly, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit at all times. And third, I want to become like Christ. He wrote things like this. I ought to confess my sins more and see the vileness of my sins. I ought to look at my sins in light of the holy law, God's countenance, the cross, the judgment seat, hell, and eternity. He wrote, I feel when I've sinned immediate reluctance to go to Christ because I'm ashamed. I feel as if it would do no good to go to Christ. And a thousand other excuses, and I'm persuaded that those are all lies from hell. He said there is neither peace nor safety from deeper sin, but in, only in going directly to Christ, God's way of peace and holiness. He wrote, I must never think a sin too small to immediately need the blood of Christ, or too great, too aggravated, too presumptuous, to hinder me from fleeing to Christ. He said, I am tempted to think, now I am an established Christian, and I have overcome this or that lust so long, there is no fear that I may venture near the temptation. This, he said, is a lie of Satan. He said, I ought to pray and labor for the deepest sense of my utter weakness and helplessness that ever a sinner felt. My only safety is to confess my helplessness and rest on the arm of omnipotence. And he wrote, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Self-examination, of course, was only the first step. He, he also wrote, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. His goal was greater communion with Christ. His goal was an enjoyment of Christ. That should be our goal. We live this life, and we want to live with a clear conscience. That means that you would be aware that you are accountable to a all-knowing, all-powerful, holy God. That as a Christian, you would know that a conscience is bound by the Word of God, even if you suppress the truth. You think about it, you know right and wrong, and then what happens is you make rules for yourself in your life. But sometimes you make rules for other people and try to impose them on them. Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley wrote a book called Conscience. And they, they noted this. I thought it was interesting, and I think it's important. No one's conscience perfectly matches God's will. As you understand God's revealed will more and more, opportunity to add rules to your conscience that God's word clearly teaches and eliminate rules that God's word treats as optional will be available. You will add rules to your conscience that the word of God says, do this. But you'll eliminate rules that are optional. They're not universal for every Christian. I would encourage you today as you think about this passage and about your life and about you know, whether you're a Christian or not, but if you say, no, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. Okay. Then consider making one change today in your heart, in your life, that would increase your assurance in Christ's faithfulness, that would bolster your hope in Christ? What kind of change could you make in your life to make much of Christ? 
that you would be appropriately devastated by the, the magnitude of your sin, of course, but then you would be absolutely delighted in, in the magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior. And really, this prayer for sanctification is, is aiming to that. It's, I'm praying for what God says he wants and what he's going to do. I'm praying for preserving grace. And there is a promise of completion attached to it. He who calls you is faithful. He's reliable. He will surely do it. He will bring it to pass. He is able to do far more than we can ask or think. He has decreed it. In Isaiah 25, 9, it says this. It will be said on that day, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Every Christian today should believe it. Believe the gospel truth. The outcome is not in question. It is not a gamble. Do not wonder, believer, if you will make it all the way to heaven. Or doubt, due to all the twists and turns of life, that God may not come through, that he might fail to get you to his predetermined final destination. Think about God's providential orchestration of your life. It's like a beautiful jigsaw puzzle with thousands of pieces. And you can't see how all the pieces are going to fit together. You don't know what's coming next. Oftentimes in your life, you feel like you're blindfolded. But God has it all in hand. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. The debt has been paid. He has given righteousness. But we try to do all this funky math in our head about how it's not going to work out. Things are too messed up in my life. It's just not going to, it's not going to happen. Salvation math is beyond your comprehension. God is like the person who shows up in a big room full of people and no one can solve the math problem and they go up to the chalkboard and they just write out everything out there and you're just like blown away, wow. He's beyond that. Think about when you're driving to the store or even to work, or maybe you're taking a cross-country trip. Think about all the, the turns and the stops and the dangers and the pitfalls that happen, and you kind of think, if you think that, you could think, wow, that's amazing that I could get to that one destination, that one location from my starting point. And, and you have to say, wow, God providentially, providentially orchestrates life. But when you think of salvation, it's more miraculous. It's, it's even more meticulous. God transforms a lost sinner makes the dead to live, takes you through the gauntlet of daily living for however many years he's ordained, and finally brings you safely to the, to the promised inheritance. And you haven't seen it yet, but you'll get there because God is faithful. If you're a true believer, you're chosen in Christ. You're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. You're trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Your substitute died in your place at the cross. But you have to keep telling yourself the truth over and over again. I'm chosen by Jesus. I'm secure in him forever. That's not changing. I've been effectually called. I'm being faithfully kept. He's going to save me fully. If I'm truly saved, I will be fully saved. You would say with those that would be around the throne, as, as it says in Revelation 5, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You know, the only one that's gambling with their soul is the person who refused to yield to Christ. 
That's the only gamble that's going on is the person who says, I'm not going to believe in Jesus. I won't confess my sins. I don't want to please him. That's the person who's gambling. Think with me back into the Old Testament and the Passover. Think about what happened. God wasn't checking to see who was worthy inside the house. He was seeing if the blood was sprinkled on the doorsteps, painted on the doorposts. Excuse me. He was checking for the sprinkled blood on the doorposts. He wasn't seeing, well, who's worthy, who's righteous. He does this in Christ. None are worthy. Only Jesus is. You can't buy entrance into the eternal dwellings. Only Christ can. And the question you have to ask yourself is, have I been washed by the blood of Christ? Am I sprinkled with his blood? Has my soul been cleansed? And is it continuing to be cleansed in Christ? Because if it's true about you, that means your identity has been changed. Your eternity is secure in Christ. You're no longer what you were before. Put off the old, put on the new. Stay away from the sins that entangled you previously. You're a child of the king. You're no longer a child of wrath. You've been chosen and justified. You're being sanctified. You're being renewed. You will be glorified. If if you are truly saved, you will be fully saved. And it's because God is faithful. And Lord, we praise you that you are faithful. Never have one of your promises fallen to the ground. Never would you lead us astray. Always. We can trust in you. We praise you. We thank you. We love you because you first loved us. We want to pray this prayer for sanctification. We want to praise you for this promise of full completion of your plan. We praise you. We love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.